I'm home. Welcome to the Confessions of an Arcade Addict podcast, an introspective look at video gaming from the classic era to the modern day. Now here is your host, Brian. Hey folks, what's going on out there? Brian here, and this is episode number 38 of the Confessions of an Arcade Addict podcast. Let's see, when last we left off, uh, not too much has been going on since I went to the arcade in Brighton. I did go to Pinball Pete's last night, or should I say Saturday night, and, you know, just as a little bit of stress relief, I had been doing home care at home all day. I went grocery shopping, I did the laundry, I did the dishes... And I was just kind of worn out, tired, and I just wanted to get a little me time. So after putting my son to bed, yeah, that's exactly what I did. So went downtown, um, went to Pinball Pete's. I only spent $2 because the games I play, I'm really good at. Um, I played Street Fighter Two Champion Edition, uh, won the game, uh, even though it was a best of three against... Uh, bison at the end, but I was able to relive my, uh, shall I say, nickname that my ex-roommate used to call me when we played Street Fighter 2 singly and competitively. She used to always call me Captain Comeback because I had a way of winning a fight even though my fighter was very, very low on health and even just the lightest of blows would finish my character off, but I would somehow win through. And that's what I did against Bison in uh, two out of three fights. Uh, He won the second one, I won the first one, and then I eked out a victory at the end. Um, From there, I went upstairs to the main entrance and played Robotron. That I'm happy to say that machine is fully functional now. Um, I got, what, 500,000 points, and I played a couple of games, and the second game only got about, what, 300,000, so, you know, I decided to go back down and play the Galaga machine, see if I could straight nine it, and I came within 20 points of straight nining it, that's 999,970 points. Uh, beating my already high score on that machine by 10 points. (laughs) It was kind of funny, but yeah. Um, The game itself that I played was rather sloppy. I missed several challenging stages because of the um, challenges of that particular machine. Um, It's a very easy machine, I do have to say. It's got uh, super fast shots, and it also is set on a low difficulty level. But when it comes to challenging stages, when you have, you know, the uh, enemy spaceships going like one pixel above where your spaceship is, um, because you have the super fast shots, you miss those. So I missed like three challenging stages in a row. Um, that led to me not getting to the score I wanted by the stage I wanted. Um, I think I got to, like, what's stage 83 by the time I got high enough in score to come close to straight nining it. So it worked out. It was okay. I had fun. You know, so that's all that matters. You know, blew off a little steam, 
and got to you know get out of the house for a little bit that's pretty much what was going on uh, let's see on the home gaming front I'm still playing Elite Dangerous um, just played Nova Drift after a major update and I have to say I'm not very fond of the update that they put out on that game because the build that I would use for my fighter um, is not quite as effective as it once was and with it not being as effective as it was you know the enjoyment levels not quite there I'm probably gonna have to see about uh, getting another build and going from there we'll see we'll see um, some of the changes they made to that game were actually really nice but eh, it wasn't that great you know I mean I was putting up really really good scores on um, Nova Drift for months and then with this new update they put out yeah it just wasn't as effective I'll have to see what I can do about that other than that I played Battletech a few times uh, I was playing Streets of Rage 4 a little bit and mostly watching you know all the people I follow on Twitch you know like Buana I actually saw Zallard 1 today. He was streaming, which was really good. As it turns out, he was really sick. That's why he hadn't been around for, like, what? Oh, my goodness, like three, four months or something like that. Um, let's see. And just, you know, following a lot of the other people that, you know, I tune in, like Boss Lady B, who is an elite dangerous streamer. And I really like what she's doing with her stream and how she makes everything that she does more or less a community. And I'm really, really uh, appreciative of all the things she does on that stream. So I did a check of uh, emails and voicemails. Still nothing. So once again, if you guys have any questions, thoughts, comments... Uh, is there a classic arcade game or home game you want me to cover? Um, by all means, get a hold of me, arcadeaddictbrian at gmail.com. Also, there is a phone number for voicemails. That number is 734-743-2433. Also, social media is up and running. I did post a picture of the uh, score that I put up on Galaga uh, Saturday night on uh, Instagram and it automatically copies over to um, my Tumblr page and also my uh, Facebook page actually my personal Facebook page I should uh, have it go to the arcade you know the arcade addict Brian but I haven't done that yet I need to get on the stick but anyway um on Facebook just search for confessions of an arcade addict it'll take you right to the page there is a discussion group that goes along with that so if you you know want to have discussions with the people that follow the channel by all means go right for it um let's see on uh, instagram i am at arcade addict brian on twitter i am arcade addict underscore b and tumblr is tumblr.com slash blog slash confessions of an arcade addict so once again there are multiple ways of getting hold of the show and i'm here you know i try to do an episode once a month and, you know, that's more than enough time for any questions or comments to be, uh, to be generated. So, hey, by all means, get a hold of me. So, let's get on with the show with all that done. I've got a very heavy episode uh, today. I've got a, quite a bit to talk about, so let's get right to it. Top 10s. 
top tens. Super Nintendo games. Um, I was lucky enough to be there at the launch of the, SC, uh, the Super Nintendo in 1991. Um, it was, like I said, when I did um, my, my story time for working at the Nintendo kiosk and also talking about the Super Nintendo in uh, the home system segment in previous episodes, it was a really big deal. It really, really was. And, you know, during the summer, I mean, I was already a regular at the kiosk because we were playing Nintendo games. Then when the Super Nintendo came out, you know, we naturally gravitated towards that. You know, the games were prettier. They were more complex. The sound was so much better. Of course, it was, you know, going from an 8-bit system in the NES to the 16-bit system in the Super NES. So... You know, everything, of course, is going to get a nice bump. But um, when it came out, we were blown away by all the games that had come out for it. Like, you know, Super Mario World, Super Tennis, Super Contra, F-Zero, Gradius 3, Pilot Wings, UN Squadron. Those were just some of the games that uh, the kiosk got and actually uh, would demonstrate for potential customers so you know and by this time you know it the game you know basically the system would sell itself so you know basically all you had to do was just know how to take a uh, a credit card um uh you know how to run a credit card through the system or how to uh run a check through the system because people especially right around the christmas uh, Christmas time, we're buying these things up in droves. You know, games, controllers, uh, systems, the whole nine yards. Alright, so once again, these are my favorite uh, ten favorite Super Nintendo games. Um, of course, this list is probably going to be radically different than pretty much anybody else's list. And if you got something to say, hey, email me, send a voicemail, whatever you got to do, let's talk about it. Um, but yeah, these are the games I had the most and the most direct experience with. So, you know, these games, um, you know, of course would make my top 10 because, well, quite honestly, I had the most fun playing these games. So here we go. Um, let's see. Let's start it off. Final Fantasy 2. Um just like with the original Final Fantasy for the Super Nintendo, this was the RPG everyone had to have, you know, right around Christmas of 91. Um, it came out just before Christmas. I mean, the graphics were great. The story was crazy, you know, as most Final Fantasy games are. I'm trying to remember, what is the... Oh, that's right. It was uh, Final Fantasy IV in Japan, actually. But in, they decided to make it Final Fantasy 2 here. I mean, the name, the numbering system for Final Fantasy got weird. And it only kind of resolved itself, I think, towards... Uh, yeah, when Final Fantasy 7 came out for the PlayStation. That was, that was actually when they finally got it all straight. And out. Um, yeah. Uh, final, the Final Fantasy 2 and 3 for the NES were only released in Japan, which is a shame. Um, I have seen and heard about the um, the translated uh, games uh, for uh, the NES. 
um, you know, where they translated the whole thing into English to varying levels of success. But um, yeah, this game was fantastic. I loved it. I loved it just for the spell effects. They were great. They're fantastic. Okay, so let's see. And of course, uh, Super Tennis. Um, this game I had a ton of fun at, you know, with. Um, I used to play Anthony, the manager of the kiosk, his assistant manager, Dave. Um, you know, we would have, like, these, like, tournament-style uh, games. And, you know, we would play each other all the time and, you know, talk a bunch of junk to each other and things like that. You know, what usually would happen when you got a bunch of people sitting around playing video games. Um, my friend Chris used to give me the most trouble at the game, and he used to do it by always trying to make me laugh while we were playing. Chris was really funny in a really dry and sarcastic way. Um, and, you know, yeah, he always knew kind of what to say to, you know, break somebody up, even, you know, even though it wasn't sort of something he'd do intentionally unless he was playing me <laughs> super tennis. Um, but yeah, I mean, against those guys, I won more than I lost. Um, it, I beat the boss at the end of the tournament mode. Um, oh my goodness, when did that happen? That was probably about 1995, um, when I was living with my roommate. Um, and... You know, I was just like, I want to just beat this tournament mode because it's always been driving me crazy. So, of course, back in those days, they had a um, a code system to, you know, access your save games. You know, I mean, I think like the, what the lithium battery backup thing or whatever they used in the cartridges to save the games, they, they weren't, um, they weren't prevalent yet. Um, only like the major games like Final Fantasy 2 and, you know, a few other games would have like memory saves rather than, you know, codes. So, yeah, I mean, I mean, I got to the end and it took me a long time to beat the boss because he was almost completely flawless until, um, you figured out there was a particular shot combination you had to use in order to get score points off him, and it always worked. So, I mean, that was a rather, um, it was, it gave me a feeling of accomplishment, let's say. Because, yeah, this is this has been, like, one of my favorite tennis games of all time. I mean, if I did a top ten, it'd probably be in the top five. Um, okay, Final Fight 3. Um, now, I liked Final Fight, the original Final Fight, but they had... Um, they couldn't have all three players in the original Final Fight game. They only had Cody and Hagar, and Guy got his own game. Um, and I thought that was a bit of a ripoff, but yeah, I mean, I loved Final Fight. And as, as much of a quarter eater as the game was, um, when it came out on the Nintendo, the uh, Super Nintendo, it was almost perfect. You know, there was a couple of things here and there that didn't match the arcade game, but, you know, apples to a apples to oranges, basically. Um, but, yeah, Final Fight 2 was okay, but eh. eh it didn't really cap grab my interest like Final Fight 3 did. I mean, I love Final Fight 3 because you had, um, you had Guy, 
you had Hagar, you had this guy Dean, who's like this part cyborg kind of guy who uses electricity, and I'm trying to remember the, the female's name, I think her name was Lucia, and, you know, they were, they were fun characters to play, but um, I love I love playing it with Hagar because he had this running clothesline, so I'd be running across the screen and clotheslining all the uh, the um, enemies into oblivion. And then of course you build up your super meter, and then you would do a um, particular controller button combination, and then you would have get this ridiculous um, combination move. Like with Guy, it was like this. Um, rapid fire punch and uh like short range fireball thing and with hagar it was this uh like aerial suplex into his jumping spinning pile driver combination and the impact was so big it would you know so great it would knock down all enemies that were nearby <laughs> it was just kind of funny i mean i love the game and also it had multiple uh, paths to go through the game so you had more replayability not just from the four characters in the game but also you could choose different paths in the game to get to the end and of course the end fight is ridiculous but it was fun uh, Luffy 2 Rise of the Sinistrals now to me this is the best turn-based RPG for the Super Nintendo hands down even more than Final Fantasy and I know that's sacrilegious to say, but hey, <laughs> this is my show. If you have a different opinion, either get a hold of me or go make your own podcast and you can say what's better. But yeah, to me, this was the best one. And there's a reason for it. I mean, the story is great. The characters are great. The music is good. You know, and the game just on its own looks really good. But there was just one feature in this game that made it an instant classic. The Ancient Cave. Um, this is an area you encounter about two-thirds or three-quarters of the way through the game. And basically it's a randomly generated 99-level dungeon that you go into. Um, all your characters are reduced to first level with no equipment or spells. And the goal, and goal in this dungeon is threefold. The first goal is to find and obtain spells and magical items to uh, equip your characters with so they can go deeper in the dungeon and survive the monsters that increase in power as you go deeper into it. Uh, the second one is to find the iris items. Um, they, it was like this full set. It was like a suit of armor. It was a weapon. It was a ring. Um, it was like two or three other things. But, you know, those were the only things you could keep when you left the ancient cave. So, you know, they would also help you out quite a bit in the main story. You know, they were like, you know, I would say almost epic level items in the game. So, you know, you could just be going into the ancient cave over and over and over and over again trying to get all of the iris items. So, I mean, that was another thing that made it great. And the third thing was... Uh, the hardest part, getting to the bottom level. I mean, I've only seen it on um, YouTube, um, and there, of course, were strategy guides. I mean, there's a website that I have in my bookmarks on my browser um, that basically just gives you a complete rundown of Lufia from beginning to end, including how to beat how to beat the ancient cave. 
because basically once you get down to level 99, there's like this boss monster you have to fight and defeat to be able to, you know, you know, get out of the ancient cave. I mean, to the point now, in the last couple of years, or three, four, five years, there have been... There have been... Um, speed runs on the ancient cave you know uh, on the streaming services like twitch and youtube and the various other ones that have popped up since then and i that blew my mind that there was there were people that were doing uh speed runs on the ancient cave but you know <laughs> when it comes down to it people do speed runs on all, almost everything that you can do speed runs on but yeah this is my favorite turn-based RPG for the Super Nintendo, without a doubt. I love it. It's awesome. I still play it in emulation to this day, because it's just that great. Um, Dragon Ball Z RPG Legend of the Super Saiyan. Um, this thing was a trip. I mean, this RPG is just absolute trip. Um, you know, the time's like 1994 or 1995, somewhere in there, um, my roommate and I were already massively into Dragon Ball Z. I mean, this is back when people were exchanging uh, tapes and things like that. And trying to remember, when did we start going to Tampa? Um, I want to say, yeah, that was about 1995 when, yeah, when I got the three-bedroom apartment and my roommate moved in with me. Um... Yeah, we started going down the, going down to Tampa, and we started getting, like, the Dragon Ball Z uh, Boo storyline uh, episode straight off of Fuji TV back in the day. And we were getting episodes for... We were getting, like, the, um, the OVAs, and we were getting the um, various episodes. We were getting the Frieza saga. We were getting the Cell saga, you know, and just by... You know our experience, our mutual experience with anime in general. We kind of figured out what the relationship between um, Goku and Vegeta was. You know, and how you know every you know how all the other characters came in. You know, the the whole Trunks thing. We figured out that you know it was obvious, but you know in the beginning of the Trunks storyline. But yeah, we figured out that, you know, Future Trunks was, you know, from another, uh, from a completely different time frame and things like that. It was really cool. But yeah, when, when she got this game, um, you know, she f just p figured it out by trial and error. She, you know, she pieced it all together. It was really, really, I mean, I give it to her about it. I mean, basically it's card-based and turn-based and it was just a lot of fun she'd figure out all the training sequences like um when goku was on his way to namek after everybody else went to namek you know he's on his way and you know he's healing up and then once he's healed he starts train gravity training and things like that she figured all that stuff out um but yeah i mean it's it was fun to watch her play it but i never could figure it out you know not without her helping me with it but yeah, I mean, I love the RPG because it was just a lot of fun. We were such DBZ heads back then, it wasn't even funny. Okay, um, Super Punch-Out. Um, at the time when this came out, which was what, 1995? Um, 
at the time I thought myself of myself as something of a punch out or super punch out expert. I mean, I've learned the bitter truth since then. I mean, what just basically sitting and watching Zallard one straight nine punch out and then doing the same thing for super punch out. Yeah, I know who the experts are and it ain't me. Um, but yeah, um, when I played this game, I just kind of thought that, you know, I could kind of, you know, bull rush my way through it like I did with the arcade punch out and super punch out um, and to a lesser extent Mike Tyson's punch out. But no. Uh, I mean, the characters are a little bit different. A few more char new characters are in the game. The action is faster and wackier. Um, some of the char new characters are downright cheap in their tactics. It's still fun to play, but yeah. It's one of those things where, yeah, you can get really frustrated by this game really quick. Um, you know, I would watch Zallard when he was streaming. He would, you know do this and he would actually be so deep into the tactics where it's like we're talking frame perfect punches and things like that that yeah I just stopped I just lost interest <laughs> um NBA Jam Tournament Edition um yeah as fun as the original game was for the Super Nintendo and it was a lot of fun the sequel of course was better I mean it was the same thing in the arcade I mean more players more over the top dunks um, the ability to substitute your players at halftime and things like that. I mean, it was it was fun playing against the computer, even though the computer will be horrifically cheap and cheesy. But, you know, the best time was playing against another person who was, at the very least, as good as you were. You know, just a fantastic arcade translation. Um, Area 88 slash UN Squadron. Um, this was one of the games that my roommate and I would play a lot back in the day. She actually had the Area 88 um, anime on uh, VHS, and I never got around to watching it, and I always did. Maybe I'll see if they've got it on YouTube or something after I'm done recording. Um, yeah, note to self, right? Um, this is an underrated shooter by Capcom, um, and only years later after playing and beating the... Uh, the Super Nintendo version did, I actually play the arcade version, uh, which of course is, you know, much more intense, but it wasn't quite, I mean, it was more challenging in its own way because, you know, arcade games just have a lot more, a lot more resources to play with, so the action is a lot smoother, faster, and more intense. I mean, this game brings back a ton of good memories. You know, back when I was living with my roommate, and you know, she would be bringing games home from her job at uh, that mom and pop uh, video game rental store. You know, it was awesome. You know, great game. I still play it every once in a while just for the heck of it. Um, Street Fighter Two. Um, when this game came out for the Super Ni Super Nintendo, it was a huge deal. I mean, there were TV commercials and everything else. I mean, the only game that made a bigger splash. Uh, in that genre was Mortal Kombat when it came out. Um, now, my whole thing is is that um, this is where my um, love for the Genesis starts to come out because even though the Super Nintendo Street Fighter was graphically superior and the gameplay was arguably better, but no, I just had a better time playing the Genesis version. 
I mean, it could have been the controls, especially when um, Sega released those uh, um, Genesis controllers with the with the six with the six row buttons on them, you know, which made playing fighting games a lot easier. But you know, I I've, I've said it when I talked about uh, the Genesis and the Super Nintendo. The the Super Nintendo games looked better and sounded better but the Genesis games played better. And like I said, I'm more about gameplay than anything else. But it wasn't quite the experience the arcade game gave you. Um, it was close, but it, there was just something missing, and I'm, I still don't know what uh, what it was. You know, we're talking, what, oh goodness, what, 30 years later now? Or, or longer, for that matter. But yeah, I mean, people were buying Street Fighter in droves. I remember that, because... You know, if we're talking, when did it come out? What, 1992? When Street Fighter 2 came out? For the Super Nintendo? I think it was 92? Um, you know, you still had the Street Fighter versus Mortal Kombat wars going on in arcades and, you know, people arguing about which one was better. So, you know, of course that led to, you know, the sale of both games being driven by the other. So, yeah, I mean, like I said, Street Fighter 2 for the Super Nintendo, you know, it was visually superior, but the Genesis game played better, in my opinion. Uh, let's see, Super Mario Kart. Um, this was another game that was massive when it came out. I mean, absolutely huge. Um, I mean, it was cute, it was fun, and when you got people playing each other on this game, oh, the darker natures of humanity would come out in a big way. If you had, you know, multiple people playing it. I mean, the game could get so cutthroat in some ways. I mean, it was ridiculous. Uh, I never beat it. I mean, I got maybe about, what, three quarters of the way through the game. And there was just one of the tracks in, like, the ghost world that was just so difficult. I could never quite get it. I mean, and I just lost interest after that. So, yeah, those are my top tens. Uh, let's see, honorable mentions. Now, there are way too many games to mention here. Uh, I limited myself to ten of them. Um, let's see, Super Metroid, Super Mario RPG, Super Baseball Simulator 1000, because of all the experiences at the kiosk, because we went, um, the group of us that were still going to the kiosk to play games, we went away from Super Baseball and we started playing this. Um, Knights of the Round, which is my favorite beat-em-up for the Super Nintendo. Even more than Final Fight, really. You know, but, you know, Final F I'll give Final Fight the nod there. It was, it, I could have gone with either one, but I gave it to Final Fight. Uh, John Madden Football, which was revolutionary when that came out, because people were like, what? <laughs> this is crazy. Um, but yeah, then Seventh Saga, RPG... I give it its props here, even though it was a very, very, very frustrating game. Uh, Final Fantasy III, uh, which came out, which I think was the Japanese equivalent was Final Fantasy V, I think? Either five or six? Oh, like I said, you, j I can't even remember. Um, Breath of Fire, uh, 1 and 2, um, not so much 3. 1 and 2 were just better game better rpgs in my opinion um wwf royal rumble which was my favorite wrestling game for the super nintendo and secret of mana so there you have it uh my top tens 
with honorable mentions. Um, if there's a game that you have a story about or thoughts about or you think something else should be on this top 10, hey, get a hold of me. ArcadeAddictBrian at gmail.com Okay, so let's get on into the main course of this episode, and that is, are you experienced? I'm too old for this. Hiding in front seats like a teenager. Oh, but I think I'm getting too old for this stuff. I'm getting too old for this. Listen, you was born too old for this. I'm getting too old for this. I'm getting too old for this. Lying red arse to my heather chasing other men's cattle. I'm getting too old for this sort of thing. Maybe we're getting too old for this. What do you think, huh? I'm not too old for this shit. I'm not too old for this shit. You will not. We're not too old for this shit. We're not too old for this shit. We're not too old for this shit. like you believe. We're not too old for this shit. We're not too old for this shit. I'm not going to buy a hemorrhoid cookie. We're not too old for this shit. Are you experienced? Spy Hunter. Oh, man. This game. I could go on for this game. Go on about this game forever and ever and ever. And I almost did when I wrote the notes for this segment. For sure. Um, oh, let's see. I mean, I'm, I'm going to wait until I get done with all the information on it before I start, you know, gushing about it. So let's just go ahead and access Wikipedia and let's do this. Spy Hunter is a vehicular action game developed by Bally Midway and released in the arcades in 1983. The game draws inspiration from the James Bond films and was originally supposed to carry the James Bond brand. That would have been interesting. Uh, let's see. The object of the game is to drive down roads in the technologically advanced interceptor car and destroy various enemy vehicles with a variety of onboard weapons. Spy Hunter was produced in both sit-down and standard upright versions, with the latter being more common. Yeah, I've never seen a sit-down Spy Hunter. I mean, I've seen it in pictures, but I've never seen one actually in the wild. I think Galloping Ghost has one. I think they have one, but I'll have to see when I actually get get over there. You know, probably psh, whenever things get relaxed as far as state-to-state -state travel goes. That's what I'm going to do. Um, the game's controls consist of a steering wheel in the form of a futuristic aircraft-style yoke with several special-purpose buttons a two-position stick shift, offering low and high gears, and a pedal used for acceleration. The Spy Hunter was ported to the Atari 2600, Atari 8-Bit Family, Amstrad CPC, ZX Spectrum, Commodore 64, Apple II, ColecoVision, MS-DOS, Nintendo Entertainment System, and BBC Micro. Spy Hunter was followed by Spy Hunter 2, which added a 3D view and a two-player split-screen play, a pinball tie-in, I've actually played the Spy Hunter pinball machine, and a successor series of the games bearing the Spy Hunter name. In addition, the NES received an exclusive sequel titled Super Spy Hunter. I want to actually see if I can find that, but let's get on with it. Uh, gameplay. Uh, spy Hunter is a ver vertical scrolling driving game with the player in the role of a spy driving an armed sports car. The object of the game is to travel the freeway, destroying as many vehicles as possible while protecting civilian vehicles. The game uses a top-down perspective. The game begins with the player driving the fictitious G6155 Interceptor. Various enemy vehicles try to destroy the player's car or to force it off the road, including a helicopter that drops bombs from overhead. A counter increments the score while the car is moving and on the road. Additional points are earned by destroying enemy vehicles using weapons by, or by forcing them off the road. 
After an initial lead time during which the player has an unlimited supply of cars, the player must earn extra cars by obtaining sufficient points. Destroying non-enemy cars halts the score counter for a short while, and no points are scored whenever the player's car is off the road. The car can be destroyed by a hard collision with another vehicle if it is hit by an enemy weapon, including the craters blasted into the road by the helicopter's bombs, or by running far enough off the roadway or waterway. Following periodic forks in the road, the players can enter new regions with different terrain or weather conditions. Players can also augment the car's standard machine guns with other weapons by entering the weapons van, which appears in each new territory and can be be periodically summoned by pressing the blinking weapons van button. Three special weapons are available, oil slicks, smoke screens, and surface-to-air missiles. Each has limited ammo and are lost if the player's car is destroyed. The game's dashboard shows which weapons are available when lit. It is possible for the player to convert the car into a go-fast boat for previous periods by driving through a special boathouse which appears infrequently at the side of the road, after which the player is attacked by two different enemy boats. The in-game road is endless and the game itself has no ending. Let's see, uh, development. Uh, game designer George Gomez drew inspiration for the game by listening to an audio cassette tape of music from the James Bond films. He designed the game with Tom Leon, who, with whom he had worked on Tron. Gomez sketched out the in-game roadmap on a long scroll of drawing paper and also came up with the idea of the weapons van. Originally, the game was to be based directly on James Bond and to have the James Bond theme as in-game music, but the license could not be acquired. Instead, an electronic arrangement of Henry Mancini's theme to Peter Gunn plays throughout. Let's see... and let's see, the legacy. Uh, a pinball table based on Spy Hunter was released in 1984 by Bally. The original Spy Hunter was followed by an arcade sequel, Spy Hunter 2, in 1987. It retained the Peter Gunn theme and incorporated a cooperative two-player mode, but the top-down view was replaced with a perspective from behind and above the car. I played it. It's not a very good game. <laughs> Ugh. After Japanese video game developer Sunsoft ported Spy Hunter to the Nintendo Entertainment System, the company created Battle Formula with similar gameplay. Sunsoft America signed a deal with Bally Midway to release it outside Japan as Super Spy Hunter. The series was reprised in 2001 with Spy Hunter being developed by Paradigm Entertainment and published for, by Midway Games for the PlayStation 2, Xbox, GameCube, Game Boy Advance, and Microsoft Windows. A sequel was developed by Angel Studios and was released in 2003. Another reboot of the series was developed by TT Fusion for the Nintendo 3DS and PlayStation Vita and was released by Warner Brothers Interactive in October 2012. Spy Hunter was cloned as Major Motion, released by Microdeal for the Atari ST in 1986. Agent Intercept was for the Apple Arcade and is an homage to Spy Hunter and that was released in 2019. Interesting. In the 2015 Toys to Life video game LEGO Dimensions, the Midway Arcade level pack includes a buildable LEGO G6155 Interceptor. A playable emulation of the arcade version is also included as part of the pack. I'll have to look that up because I want to see what that looks like for sure. Uh, let's see. Re-releases. Uh, Spy Hunter was included in the Midway's Greatest Arcade Hits Volume 1 for the Nintendo 64. 
Midway Arcade Treasures, a 2003 compilation of arcade games available for the GameCube, PlayStation 2, Xbox, and Microsoft Windows, which I have. Actually, I have uh, both of those. Uh, let's see. Um, Midway Arcade Treasures, Extended Play for the PlayStation Portable, and Midway Arcade Origins, a 2012 compilation available for the PlayStation 3 and Xbox 360. Uh, let's see, they go into the movie that they decided to make in, two, in or to make in 2003. I'm not going to go into that because, yeah, <laughs> it wasn't a great movie and doesn't deserve a lot of attention. But anyway, so my own experiences with it. The first time I played this game was at Trumbull Mall Arcade. Um, Spanky's got it a little bit later after that. Um, Milford Wreck and Arnie's Places had it. And then the News Corner got it as well. Um, this was one of the handful of games that got what I call universal coverage. And what I mean by that is that it was one of the handful of games that was present in nearly every arcade and game room that I would go to in my teen years. Like Pac-Man, Ms. Pac-Man, or Donkey Kong. Almost every arcade I've ever been to um, growing up in Connecticut had these machines in them at one time. Um, the game itself, um, of course, it was like being like James Bond, uh, driving and dispatching enemies while trying to avoid killing civilians. Uh, the ga action would get hot and heavy, and how well you did at the game depended on your choices when the road forked as much as your skill. This is one of the very few games that actually caused me an injury. <laughs> I've already, I think I've talked about it, but I'll say it here again. Um, I was at Spanky's, I want to say summer of 83, um, this is when I was on a major Spy Hunter jag because, once again, I was in competition with my friend Mark. Um, he would put up scores like, well, let's see, what, like 215, 220,000. And I was always trailing behind him a little bit. I mean, like 175,000 or 180,000 or something like that. Um, so I would just get on these jags because I wanted to be able to compete with him you know when it came to these games you know you know in some ways he you know he was he's my friend but in some ways in video game uh terms he was something of a rival but you know he never rubbed my face in it let's um for that i'm glad because that was a one way to get me to not be interested in you know in the particular game he would kick my butt in um but yeah so one day I was at Spanky's, and I just got on this massive Spy Hunter Jag. I think I dropped, like, I want to say, like, $3, $4 in tokens in the machine. And that was when it was one token one token to play. So, yeah, I mean, I was really, really into it. But it, I didn't stop playing it until it was time for me to get home that, that evening. Um... I think I played it for, it was at least an hour straight. And I've never, like I said, I've never seen the sit-down or environmental version of the game. So yeah, um, I had only stopped for two reasons. One was the time I had to get my butt home for some reason. And the second reason was is that I messed up my left foot. I was planning all my weight on that foot while I was using my right foot to modulate the speed with the pedal. And... I had been playing that game for so long, and of course I couldn't uh, switch it to where I could use my left foot for modulating the speed 
you know, the, the speed with the pedal because, you know, my dexterity with my left foot was not as good. So, yeah, I mean, and also it would kind of throw me kind of off-center. I mean, almost every Spy Hunter machine is geared towards people who, you know, favor their right side. You know, sort of like, you know, in an actual car. I think that's what they were going for when they designed their cabinets. But, yeah, I mean, yeah, I messed up my foot. I mean, I was limping home. I walked home that day, and I was limping the entire way. And for a couple of days, I, you know, I strained something in my foot or something. I don't know what it was, but, yeah, I was not, I was just not in good condition for a few days. Um, gaming injuries aside, this game was another home run for Bally Midway. Um, from the time it was released, it was an instant classic. Uh, people were playing this game a lot. And even after the ro the bloom was off the rose, so to speak. I mean, we're talking 84, 85. You know, there were still people who were really into playing Spy Hunter, no matter where it was. I mean, like I said, I've seen in the news corner, most of the arcades that I would frequent back in those days. So, yeah, I mean... You know, this was one of those games that everybody loved to play at the time. When um, the arcade in Brighton actually had a machine, um, I would see kids playing it once in a while, but they didn't have their control set right. That's why I didn't play it very very often. I think I maybe played it twice, and it was just like, no. Um, one of the things in Spy Hunter is, is that you know when you would go in low gear... And then when you would shift to high gear, you would get this burst of acceleration. And now you're, you know, you're driving fast and, you know, traffic's, you know, coming at you fast and all that stuff. The machine in the arcade in Brighton didn't have that. I think they probably just had the settings wrong or they just put the settings in a different thing. But the way they had the settings going, it was almost unplayable, or at least to me it was. Um... Since then, they have either sold the machine or rotated it off the floor. Okay, so that is uh, my experiences with uh, Spy Hunter. So let's move on to time for some strategy, because I've got some uh, tactics for you to use. Time for some strategy. Okay, um, with Spy Hunter, it's it's so tempting to just go flying up the road and blasting everything that moves. That was the way I would see a lot of kids playing this game when it first came out, because nobody knew any better. You know, only like the real video game heads would be like, oh, we can't shoot the civilian cars because we get no points for that. You know, and things like that. You know, and so that's where you just have to be moderate in your approach, especially in the beginning stages or you have infinite lives as long as the timer's counting down. Um, you get points just for driving along. And like I said, you kill civilian vehicles. You get no points for like two or three seconds. So, you know, don't do that if you can help it. Uh, drive fast enough to pass them as they appear. 
and you'll be up against switchblade vehicles in the beginning in the like the first stage um they'll come from behind and they will come they will come from the front you blast them with your machine guns when they're there and just make sure to move away from the wreckage because if you're driving fast enough and you run into the wreckage it will kill you um when they come from behind um they don't use their switchblades yet which i'll talk about in a minute so you can basically just either slow down enough for them to pass you, then speed back up and blast them with your machine guns, or you can just run right, run them right off the road. When they get right, like right even with you, they'll try to run you off the road, but you can just uh, turn the stick, turn the, the yoke over towards them, and then you know you just have to make sure that when you're doing that, that you turn the yoke back so that you're back towards the road, so that you're not constantly moving towards the right because you can run them off the road but then you can crash off the uh to the side of the road um let's see uh they will get more dangerous for you they'll get more dangerous after the first weapons van appears so take advantage of the situation now blast them when you can run them off the road um after a minute of two of this um the road will split you know, it'll just split, and you can take the left fork or the right fork. Um, if you take one fork, I think it's the right fork. I can't remember now. I'd have to, like, watch a YouTube video. Um, you can, you'll get oil slicks. Um, but if you take the, the left fork, the incorrect fork, you'll get uh, smokescreen. Smokescreen is nowhere near as useful as oil slicks or missiles. You know, though the oil slicks and missiles are the most important weapons that you can have in the game. Um, so, yeah, I think it's the left fork, actually, that you get the, uh, that you get the oil slick. Once the road branches away and occupies the middle of the screen, soon after that, you'll pass by the weapons van, which will be parked on the side of the road. Um, also, this is where you start encountering road lord vehicles, which are, uh, completely bulletproof vehicles that are really heavy that'll try to run you, ram you off the road, you know, from the side. The only way you can run them off the road is to start hitting them first. Because if they start hitting you, then it becomes like this little joust in the middle of the road. And sometimes they'll win, sometimes you'll win. But it just makes things more difficult. Um, when the weapons van catches up to you, it'll pull in front of you and lower a ladder that you drive into it, a la Knight Rider. I'm pretty sure that's where George Gomez got the idea from because, yeah, Knight Rider started like a year before this game came out. Then you get oil slicks. That makes it so much easier for uh, enemy vehicles that are coming up from behind you because now uh, not only do you have the Road Lord vehicles, which will try to run you off the road, uh, the switch blades will start living up to their name by extending rotating blades from their wheels, which will, of course, cause a blowout if they hit you with them, and it'll send you careening off the road in short order. So the difficulty kicks up rather quickly, you know, so now you have more things to think about. Um, it only takes a little bit of oil on the road to disable vehicles, so basically when you see a vehicle behind you, you just tap the oil button, the oil slick button, don't hold it down because you only have so much of it. Um, you'll tap it and a little oil slick will come out on the road and it will still send the enemy vehicles careening off the road. So you can actually make it last for a while, which you actually kind of need to do. 
um, once you get through this stage, um, I'm trying to remember that you have to take another fork, um, and you need, uh, surface-to-air missiles here, because the helicopters will start coming out, and also the Enforcer will start coming out, which is like this long 1930s-style limousines with a sniper leading out, leading out of the, uh, back seat, back window to shoot a rifle at your car. If it's able to pull up even with you, it'll get one, it'll take maybe one or two shots before it hits you or hits your driver and send you careening off the road and you lose life. So, uh, with enforcers, you just need to keep moving as quickly as you dare. You can run them off the road, you can slow down to, you know, downshift to low to let them pass and then shift back up to high to catch them, you know, to run up on them and blast them with your machine guns. You know, running them off the road is a little uh, dangerous because while you're trying to do that, the enemy sniper might lean out the window, start shooting at you. I've seen that happen. Um, I've actually seen somebody um, get killed by an enforcer that was sitting on the side of the road because they weren't moving fast enough. They were only going in, like, low gear and somehow they got into where the enforcer was, and he just drove up to, to it, and the enforcer let loose with a shot and killed him. <laughs> I thought it was hilarious at the time. Um, let's see. Uh, to defeat these enemies requires skill, of course, and some daring. Uh, in the case of switchblades, just don't let them get alongside you. They'll blow your tires out, and you'll lose a life. Um, if you have an enemy vehicle behind you, have oil, use it to crash them with the road lords, hit them and run them off the road before they can do it to you. Basically try to hit them in their rear quarter panel when they're in front of you, uh, and their front quarter panel if they're coming in from behind if you don't have oil slicks. You may have to hit them two or three times, but it's doable. Um, you just don't let them start running into you because you might lose life while trying to duke it out with them. Um, yeah, with the Enforcer, it can be tough because they are as fast as you are if they get their momentum up enough and all they want to do is get alongside you and line up for a shot. Um, of course, you can blast them with your machine guns if it's in front of you, and you can run them off the road, but like I said, it's a dangerous thing to do. Uh, one, trip I, one trick I learned uh, in the cases of Road Lords and Enforcers, if you think you're in trouble, shift down to low gear, slip behind them, once you're clear, shift back up to high and go after them. It's the easiest way to do it. But this is also why oil slick is so important. You can just keep the enemies that are coming from behind you and just keep just running them off the road because you're just tapping that oil slick button. You're not using it, you know, like a huge thing of oil slick. You don't need a lot. All you need is just a little bit. Uh, let's see. Uh, if you survive this stage and you pick the right fork, you'll get the surface-to-air missiles, which you're going to need almost immediately. Right from the start of the stage, even before the, um, the, uh, weapons van gets, you know, gets to you, sometimes the helicopter will come out and it'll start dropping bombs on the ground ahead of you. And they'll create, uh, cr big, these big and deep craters and they're enough to kill you you know, by running into them. So, you know, when it's close to you or right up, right above you, let loose with a missile and watch with satisfaction as it just spins slowly and crashes to the earth. Uh, let's see. If you're good enough to survive, I think four or five stages, maybe even six, 
um, as you're driving along, you know, taking care of business, uh, a warning sign will come up from the road. They'll come up that the road ahead is out, and there'll be a little side road on the left leading to a boathouse. And that's when you transform into the go-fast boat with all the weapons that you've accumulated so far. Now, the boat doesn't handle as well as the car, so some adjustment to how it moves is required. Um, enemy bolts will start coming from behind, and when you press oil slick now, basically it turns into a wall of flame that destroys them, which is kind of cool. Um, boats that are coming from ahead will drop mines in the water, which of course will destroy your boat if you run into them, so you have to avoid them while not running toward, you know, running off the side of the river because you'll ground your boat and that'll kill you too. Um, the easiest way that I, I really used to get through this stage was to sort of modulate your speed don't go all out, you know, don't go full speed in high gear, sort of be sort of like just fast enough to keep the enemies from behind from passing you, um, but not so fast as that you're running up on the ones in front of you, which are dropping mines in the water. So yeah, I mean, this game could really be tough. Um, after a time... Um, you can stay on the water, or every so often there'll be a, uh, a branch, you know, the brook, well, there'll be a brook branching off to the right from the river, and that will sort of lead to a safe house where you're, you know, will transform back into your car, you know, a weapons van will take you back to the road, and you just keep going. Um, this game does get harder and harder and harder as you go, um, and it lasts as long as you can stay alive. You get bonus lives at 30,000, 60,000, 90,000, and 120,000 points, respectively. Uh, one of the best games, you know, especially of that year, 1983. You know, it's right up there with Star Wars, in my opinion. Um, you know, but this game, like I said, instant classic from the moment it came out. You know, I mean, the learning curve is really steep, but once you know what's going on and what to do in a given situation... It can be really satisfying. You know, you can make the game last as long as you want, as long as you're good enough to keep it moving. And, but, like I've said, this game is difficult to learn and harder to master. Believe it. I mean, what? Ma a score of, of anyone who's like an expert at it, I'd say is anything above 200,000 points. Um, just because the difficulty ramps up so quickly. So, yeah, I mean, I love this game. And, I mean, I'm looking forward to finding an arcade that actually has it, because I haven't played it uh, with any sort of seriousness in at least 25 years, if not 30. But anyway, that's Spy Hunter. Thoughts, comments, questions, anything at all? ArcadeAddictBrian at gmail.com Okay, so let's from there go into Home Systems. There's no place like home. Hey guys, I'm going home. Look, this is not a game, Mac. Screw you guys, I'm going home. Shall we play a game? Love to. Screw you guys, I'm going home. Grandpa! I'm going home! Okay, home systems. The Nintendo 64. Okay, I will say right off the top that I did not have a lot of uh, experience with this game. The only experiences that I had 
were when I was working at Best Buy, and I think it was Christmas when it came out, or when there was a lot of interest in it. Uh, I mean, the Sega, or not the Sega, the, uh, the PlayStation had been out for a while already, and now, you know, Nintendo's throwing their hat in the ring with this system. So, let's see what we can uh, glean from Wikipedia. The Nintendo 64 is a home video game console developed and marketed by Nintendo. It was first released in June 24, 1996 in Japan, September 29, 1996 in North America, and March 1st, 1997 in Europe and Australia. Okay, so if keeping to that, then yeah. Um, that, that ties in right when I was still working in the media department at uh, Best Buy in uh, late September. Um, I'm trying to remember. I think there were some... Uh, there were some shipping issues because th from late September all the way through Christmas, there was always people who were looking for uh Super Ni or excuse me Nintendo 64 games and systems, and we'd have to turn them away because we didn't have any. <laughs> uh, let's see. It was the last major home console to use cartridges as its primary storage format until the Nintendo Switch in 2017. As a fifth-generation console, it competed primarily with the PlayStation and the Sega Saturn. Development of the console began in 1993 under the codename Project Reality. Uh, although the design was mostly complete by mid-1995, its launch was delayed till 1996. The console takes its name from the 64-bit processing unit. It was launched with three games, Super Mario 64, Pilotwing 64, and Saikyo Habushogi, which was in exclusive to Japan. Time named it the Machine of the Year in 1996, and in 2015, IGN named it the ninth greatest video game console of all time. The Nintendo 64 was discontinued in 2002 following the launch of its, its successor, the GameCube. The Nintendo 64 was critically acclaimed upon release and remains one of the most recognized video game consoles. Let's see... Around the end of the 1980s, Nintendo led the video game industry with its Nintendo Entertainment System. Although the NES follow a console, the Super Nintendo Entertainment System was successful, sales took a hit from the Japanese recession. Uh, competition from longtime rival Sega and relative newcomer Sony emphasized Nintendo's need to develop a successor for the, for the SNES or risk losing market dominance to its competitors. Further complicating matters, Nintendo also faced a backlash from third-party developers unhappy with Nintendo's strict licensing policies. Yeah, I do remember reading in some video game magazines that that was a major problem. Uh, we're going to skip over the development because that's really long. Um, let's see, let's go to the announcement. Uh, the, the Nintendo 64 console was fully unveiled to the public in playable form on November 24, 1995 at Nintendo's 7th annual Shoshinkai trade show. Uh, eager for a preview, quote, hordes of Japanese school kids huddled in the cold outside. The electricity of anticipation was rippling through their ranks, end quote. Game Zero magazine uh, disseminated photos of the event two days later. Official coverage by Nintendo followed later via the Nintendo Power website and print magazine, which my roommate was subscribed to, by the way. <laughs> uh, let's see. The console was originally slated for release by Christmas of 1995. In May 1995, Nintendo deleted the, 
delayed the release to April 1996. Consumers anticipating a Nintendo release the following year at a lower price than the competition reportedly reduced the sales of competing Sega and Sony consoles during the important Christmas shopping season. Electronic Game Monthly editor Ed Samrad even suggested that Nintendo may have announced the April 1996 release date with this end in mind, knowing in advance that the system would not be ready by that date. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty certain of that, because golly knows that the video game market was rather cutthroat, especially in Japan. Uh, to continue... In its explanation of the delay, Nintendo claimed it needed more time for the Nintendo 64 software to mature and for third-party developers to produce games. Uh, Adrian Sfarty, a former engineer for SGI, attributed the, de the delay to hardware problems. He claimed that the chips underperformed in testing and were being redesigned. In 1996, Nintendo 64 software's development kit was completely redesigned as the Windows-based partner N64 system by Kyoto Microcomputer Corporation Limited of Japan. Uh, the Nintendo 64's release date was later delayed again to June 23, 1996. Nintendo said the reason for this latest delay, and in particular the cancellation of plans to release the console in all markets worldwide simultaneously, was that the company's marketing studies now indicated that they would not be able to manufacture enough units to meet demand by April 1996, potentially angering retailers in the same way Sega had done with the surprise early launch of the Saturn in North America and Europe. To counteract that possibility, gamers would grow impatient with the wait for the Nintendo 64 and purchase one of the several competing consoles already on the market. Nintendo ran ads for the system well in advance of its announced release dates with slogans like, wait for it, and is it worth the wait only if you want the best. <laughs> yeah, that's trying to make lemonade out of lemons, but yeah. Uh, let's see. Popular Electronics called the launch a much-hyped, long-anticipated moment. Several months before the launch, GamePro reported that many gamers, including a large percentage of their own editorial staff, were already saying they favored the Nintendo 64 over the Saturn and PlayStation. Yeah, let me take a moment about that. Let me take a moment and talk about that for a second. How can you even do that before the system's actually launched? When you haven't had the controller in your hands and you haven't played any of the games that me oh oh the blind loyalty was just so rampant back in the day it's one of the reasons why i stopped reading gaming magazines because it was obvious where their uh allegiances lied <laughs> it was just ridiculous at that point the console was first released in japan on june 23rd 1996 Though the initial shipment of 300,000 units sold out on the first day, Nintendo successfully avoided a repeat of the Super Famicom launch day pandemonium, in part by using a wider retail network, which included convenience stores. <laughs> wow. The remaining 200,000 units of the first production run shipped on June 26th and 30th, with almost all of them being reserved ahead of time. In the months between the Japanese and North America launches, the Nintendo 64 saw brisk sales on the American gray market, with imports stores charging as much as $699 plus shipping for the system. Wow. The Nintendo 64 was first sold in North America on September 26, 1996, although been advertised for the 29th. 
It was launched with just two games in the United States, Pilot Wing 64 and Super Mario 64. Cruising USA was pulled from the lineup less than a month before launch because it did not meet Nintendo's quality standards. In 1994, prior to the launch, Nintendo of America chairman Howard Lincoln emphasized the quality of first-party games, saying, quote, We're convinced that a few great games at launch are more important than great games mixed in with a lot of dogs, end quote. <laughs> wow. Uh, let's see, the PAL version of the console was, was released in Europe on March 1st, 1997, except for France, where it was released on September 1st of the same year. According to the Nintendo of America representatives, Nintendo had been planning for a simultaneous launch in Japan, North America, and Europe, but market studies indicated that worldwide demand for the system far exceeded the number of units they could have had ready by launch, potentially leading to consumer and retail frustration. Smart move. Originally intended to be priced at $250 US, the console was ultimately launched in, at US $199.99 to make it competitive with Sony and Sega offerings, as both the Saturn and PlayStation had been lowered to $199.99 earlier that summer. Nintendo priced the console as an impulse purchase, a strategy from the toy industry. The price of the console in the United States was further reduced in August of 1998. Let's see the promotion of it. The Nintendo 64's North American launch was backed with a $54 million marketing campaign by Leo Burnett Worldwide, meaning over $100 in marketing per North American unit that had manuf been manufactured up to this point. While competing, uh, Saturn and PlayStation both set, both set teenagers and adults as their target audience. The Nintendo 64 target audience was preteens. To boost sales during the slow post-Christmas season, Nintendo and General Mills worked together on a promotional campaign that appeared in early 1999. The advertisement by Saatchi and Saatchi New York began on January 25th and encouraged children to buy Fruit by the Foot snacks for tips how to help them with their Nintendo 64 games. 90 different tips were available with three different variations of 30 tips each. Nintendo advertised its fantastic series of peripherals with a $10 million print and television campaign from February 28th to April 30th of 2000. Leo Burnett Worldwide was in charge of this again. Oh, uh, let's see, the controller. Yeah, we can talk about the controller. Uh, the controller of the Nintendo 64 is designed with an, in an M shape and features 10 buttons, one analog control stick, and a directional pad. The Nintendo 64 is one of the first gaming consoles to have four controller ports. According to Shigeru Miyamoto, Nintendo opted to have four controller ports because the Nintendo 64 is the company's first console which can handle a four-player split-screen without significant slowdown, as you see in games like GoldenEye. <laughs> yeah. Let's see. Doo -doo 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 -doo. Games. Let's do the games real quick. Uh, let's see, a total of 393 games were released for the console, though there were a few that were exclusively sold in Japan. For comparison, Rivals PlayStation and the Sega Saturn received around 1,100 games and 600 games respectively, while previous Nintendo consoles such as the NES and Super Nintendo had 768 and 725 games released in the United States. However, the Nintendo 64 game library included a high number of critically acclaimed and widely sold games. According to TRSTS reports, 
three of the top five best-selling games in the U.S. for December 1996 were Nintendo 64 games. Both of the re remaining two were Super NES games. Super Mario 64 is the best-selling game of the generation, with 11 million units sold, beating PlayStation's Gran Turismo at 10.85 million, and Final Fantasy VII at 9.72 million in sales. Uh, game also received much praise from the critics to help pioneer the three-dimensional control schemes. Also, GoldenEye 007 was important in the evolution of the first-person shooter and has been named one of the greatest in the genre. Yeah, everyone says that GoldenEye is, is a great game. I've seen it. It's not bad, but I think it's more just because of the multiplayer version. Uh, to continue... Uh, the Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time set the, set the standard for future 3D action-adventure games and is considered by many to be one of the greatest games ever made. This trend followed Hirochi Yamauchi's strategy announced during his speech at the Nintendo 64's November 1995 unveiling that Nintendo restrict the number of titles produced for the Nintendo 64 so the developers would focus on developing games to a higher standard instead of trying to outdo their competitors with sheer quantity. <laughs> Interesting. Okay, there's a lot more here in the Wikipedia entry. But I'm not going to go into it because it's a lot of technical stuff and uh, that doesn't need to be done here. So, my experiences with it. Like I said, my experiences were are extremely limited. Uh, the, only the only time I played games on the system uh, was when I was working at Best Buy as Nintendo was going all out to sell the system during the holidays. Um, Super Mario 64 was very interesting as a game. But, in my opinion, Nintendo shot themselves in the foot in two ways. First, the games on initial release were not enough to really get people excited for the system aside from Mario 64. And second, they were priced way too high. Most people who were curious about the system balked big time when they saw they how much they had to spend to buy the games, which were averaging $60 to $75 per game, and a couple of them were almost 100 And that was crazy. Because, yeah, there, I mean, despite that, people were still buying the system up like crazy because we couldn't keep the system or most of the games in stock. So I guess Nintendo's, you know, I guess it worked. Um, the games weren't reliably in stock. We would have people coming into the store three to six months after a game would be released to try and find it. And we would have to shrug our shoulders and say, yeah, we're sold out because we would only get like a very limited amount of these games at the time um add to that that the playstation had already been on the market for well over a year and new games were coming out on a regular basis and in my opinion it was just too big of a hill for nintendo to climb um even though they tried the funny part about all of this is that i do have an n64 in my closet um it was given to to me as a gift a few years ago um i have yet to pull it out and hook it up because the circumstances as to how i came to own this system or how it was given to me are just weird and every time i think about it it just starts to make my head hurt so it just stays in the closet although um i do plan on moving to a bigger place here in the next year or two and when i do that i may just pull 
I'm going to pull all the game systems that I have out there and, you know, just basically wire them up with some sort of switcher and just so that, you know, I have them and I can play them whenever I want to. But, um, you know, there are people that swear by this system and there are a lot of them from judging from some of the, uh, retro game, uh, streams that I watch on Twitch there are a lot of people that swear by the Nintendo 64, but I mean, I was there at the beginning, and to me, it to me it wasn't quite all that. I mean, you could see the potential with games like uh, Mario 64, but yeah, I mean, but by 1996, going into 97, I was a PlayStation guy, and that's just how it was. <laughs> okay, so that's the Nintendo 64. Um, any thoughts, comments, questions? If you owned one, tell me when tell me what your experiences were. Brian at gmail.com. Okay, and finally we're going to go on the road. So once again, get in, sit down, buckle in, shut up, let's go. <laughs> Hang on. folks, Brian here, and this is a on-the-road slash arcade rundown for the News Corner. I just realized while I was listening to um, Vic Sage's latest episode where he's starting to talk about Wizard of War, I realized that there are a couple of places that deserve an arcade rundown that... Uh, I just have been ignoring, and I really shouldn't, for all of the gushing I've been doing about the news corner, you know, I really should just give it a rundown, and when I really thought about it, that place was as important in some ways as far as video gaming went, then it just as important as, uh any other place that I've gone to, you know, in my childhood and in my teenage years and into my 20s. So, uh, most of this is being drawn from memory. If I can get a little more information on, you know, any internet sources about the news corner, I will certainly uh, append it to this segment. So, here we go. Uh, the News Corner, I don't know when it originally came to be. I think it was sometime in, like, the 50s, I want to say. At least the 1960s, at the very least. Um, it was on the corner of Main Street and John Street in downtown Bridgeport. Um, it was a... The location of its the location just by itself was important because 
uh, most of the bus lines that uh, went through downtown Bridgeport on their way to points north, east, and west. You couldn't go any further south because uh, you would only go down to Seaside Park and then that would be it. Because if you went any further south, you'd be in Long Island Sound, of course. Um, but most of the bus routes would stop either on the east side of the intersection, you know, crossing over Main Street, um, the west side, or I'm sorry, the west side of the intersection, uh, crossing over Main Street, heading west, and a lot of bus routes um, either were coming from Seaside Park or were coming from Lafayette Plaza and heading north you know, towards whatever destinations were going that way. Um, of course, the Main Street line, which was the more or less lifeline for me going to places like uh, when I used to go to private school in Milford, Connecticut, you know, I would get off at Main and John Street and just walk a couple of blocks east to the train station where I would probably get engrossed in a game of Galaga and then have to may have a foot race to the uh, eastbound platform to head to Milford to go to school. <laughs> yeah, I can only think about how many times I've done that. Um, I'm trying to remember when the News Corner started getting video games in their, in, in their store. Um, of course, News Corner is a major newsstand. You, you know, it could get um, newspapers, magazines. Uh, they had an entire shelf for comic books, which they rotated out regularly. Um, back in my comic collecting heyday, I would get... Oh my goodness, I think I was collecting close to 12, 12 to 15 titles. <laughs> that was back when, of course, comic books were much more affordable. They were, when I first started, they were 35 cents an issue. And then uh, they increased to 50 cents, then 60 cents, then 75 cents, then a dollar, then a dollar 25. I think I stopped collecting right when they were $1.50 an, an, uh, an issue. Um, I'm trying to remember. I, yeah, I remember, the. just as an aside, the tipping point for me for comic books not only was the price, but also I was a Marvel comic fan. You know, DC was okay, but they just did not hold a candle to Marvel. They just didn't. Even though DC had, you know, Superman, Batman, the Justice League of America, Teen Titans, um, and so on and so forth. I mean, they had a ton of different uh, titles, but Marvel was it for me. I mean, I'm trying to remember. Um, all the titles I used to collect were like, let's see, if we're going all the way back... Uh, Star Wars uh, after the movie adaptation came out in 1977 they got the license from Lucasfilm to actually continue the uh, 
comic book series, and they did. Um, they could, they did that from 1980, no, excuse me, 1977, all the way up to, I want to say, 1985, either 85 or 86, somewhere in there, when they finally discontinued the, the comic book run. But the reason I bring that up, let's see, it was Star Wars, it was Battlestar Galactica, the Avengers, the West Coast Avengers, the X-Men, the New Mutants, um, oh goodness, I'm forgetting a couple, I actually started getting into collecting Thor, um, I'm missing a few, oh, Power Pack, that was a fantastic, uh, comic book series, um, let's see, uh, the Micronauts I collected, uh, Secret Wars when it came out, uh, the official the comic book guide to the Marvel Universe, which went through almost every single Marvel character, um, their origins, their powers, their, you know, their, you know, their current history, you know, where they were in, you know, the far, as far as the Marvel Universe went, and it went through pretty much everybody. I think it was like, oh, what, 15 issues to, to get through all of the characters, all of the major characters and, and most of the minor ones. I mean, they even had an uh, entry for Aunt May Parker, you know, Peter Parker's, you know, elderly aunt, you know, and so forth and so on. Um, that, of course, would translate over into the Marvel Superheroes game, which came out in, what, 1983? No, no, it was 84? No, 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 it was later than that. I think it was like 80, 87 or 88, somewhere in there. I'd have to look it up. My memory's failing me, of course. But anyway, um, so yeah, the, that's, what, that's what originally drew me to the news corner was being able to buy magazines and newspapers and comic books. And it was a place where if you were, like I've said before, if you were waiting for a bus to take you um, northbound, like, on, um, uh, bus route number eight, the main street line, which was the one I almost always used, or the number 12, which would, you know, take you into my neighborhood on the back end along Chopsy Hill Road, or the number six, which was the Noble Avenue bus, which actually went into my neighborhood, and, uh, when I was, like, running late, whether I was messing around after, you know, going to private school or going to uh, Spanky's or coming home from Spanky's, I could take the number 12 home uh, or the number six because those buses ran super late. Uh, the number eight bus only ran till like nine o'clock during the week. And let's see, I think it ran until like six o'clock on Saturday and like four o'clock on Sunday. Um, the number 12 and the number six, they would run to like 11 o'clock during the week. I think like eight o'clock on Saturday and like, uh, I think the, I think the number 12, I don't think the number six or the number 12 ran on Sundays. It was kind of weird. Um, yeah, the Bridgeport transit system was a little strange, but then again, it was the 1980s. It wasn't quite what it is now. Uh, to continue, um, let's see, I'm trying to remember the year they first started getting video games in their store, 
they would basically they basically cleared out one of the shelves the shelving area they cleared it out cleaned it out and they started putting video games in there uh they started off slow i want to say they started putting games in probably about 1981 or 82 um and they just kept going from there um one or two machines became three which became four um they would have title they would have miss pac-man in there you know that was a staple they had miss pac-man they had galaga for a little while they had robotron they had afterburner um let's see what else did they have oh, of course they had double dribble i talked about that when i did my uh are you experienced in uh, strategy for uh, for that game? Um, and they had they would get games that were oh what should I say? They had a couple of games that I never saw anywhere else, which was kind of funny, kind of weird in a way. But so they so like I said, this place had games rotating in and out all of the time. They had Defender actually. I'm trying to remember if they had Stargate. I don't think they did. But, yeah, so they had tons of games in that place. I mean, they only had them, like, three, four at a time. They had Sinistar, now that I think about it. They had Dragon's Lair, because I relayed that story. You know, I, I think I, rele I related that story, like, oh, God, what, two or three times during over the course of this podcast at this point. So they had a lot of games. It's just that... They would have a game for, like, I'd say probably, like, three months. Then they would just, you know, rotate. They would just take it out and put another game in. Um, and, of course, they expanded from there, which I will get back to because I'm at a stop. So, um, give me a moment. I shall return. Okay, I'm back. So, uh, as the years went on, you know, going through the 80s, 82, 83, 84, 85... Uh, 86 um, I won't say they got greedy but uh, because it was such a you know, the location was you know in such a prime position because you had literally hundreds of people if not I'd say close to a thousand people a day going through the area from you know the when the buses start at like 6 in the morning until most of them stopped at like, you know, 9, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock at night. Um, you know, so they got, I won't, say, I won't say they got greedy, but they started putting in more games. Actually, at one point, I think they had like six or seven arcade games and like four pinball machines in the place. Um, they would put the pinball machines... Uh, on the right, or excuse me, the left side of the newsstand as you walked in, um, where the paperback novels and, you know, the household novelties and, you know, the, the cooler with the sodas and dairy products were. Um, they would put the pinball machines over there. They would keep the video games on the right side um, you know, in the, it's sort of like in the center aisle, um, if, as you walked in the, uh, news, news, uh, corner, you would, you could either, you know, you would walk right past the counter, 
Um, and then you would either go left, which is where, like I said, the paperback novels and stuff and the pinball machines were, or you would go right, which was where the magazines and the comic books and the video games were. Um, let's see. Uh, trying to remember what year did that happen? I think it was like 1984. Uh, they actually got a, you know, they actually had like a video movie rental place in the back. Um, I think they took over the adjoining store. Um, there was a store that was like, you know, uh, adjoining to them, you know, not next to them. But if you were going down John Street, you know, it was next to, it was basically next door that way. Um, I think they took it over, knocked out the wall, and put in a video rental store. You know, you got to hand it to the people who own the place. They were, you know, trying to always drum up business. And they knew they had, you know, a little bit of a prime piece of real estate because you had so many people... Uh, going in and out of the place, especially during the winter, you know, uh, people would, you know, would come inside the news store, news corner and just stay by the front window, uh, because it was, you know, they had their heat on, so it was warm. So you didn't have to stand out in the cold, especially at night, you know, to catch the bus. Um, so they would do things like that. Um, like I said, they had, so many games coming in and out of that place it was it was silly it was ridiculous um like i said they keep a game for maybe about i'd say probably uh, depending on how much business it would generate i think depend um determined how long they kept it because there were some games that were there for maybe like two or three months then there were those that would stay there for a couple of years <laughs> um and the games more or less depend, you know, because they would have, especially on Saturdays now that I think about it, you know, they'd have a bunch of kids coming through the place, you know, buying comic books, buying candy, buying sodas, uh, playing video games. Um, despite all that, you know, I would, if I was going to put it in an arcade review, um, I would probably give average marks for functionality because it was sort of like a hit and miss kind of thing um if something was wrong with the game uh it would take them a little while to get it fixed um but usually you know i think they did what they could to maintain the machines i just think if something major went wrong it would take a while or in some cases they would just rotate the machine out of there you know, they would just take it out, take it out of the art, you know, take it out of the news corner, never to be seen again. I, that did happen on a couple of occasions. Um, let's see, what else? Um, like I said, uh, when I was talking about um, Double Dribble in Are You Experienced, I was talking about my 100-point uh, game. Um, the news corner had a, no, they were notorious for taking their games and jacking the difficulty level all the way up. Um, on the one hand, it was frustrating because if it was a new game, like say like Rygar or Jackal or Cabal or something like that, where you hadn't seen it before and you wanted to play it, um, it would be frustrating because the difficulty level would be so high 
that unless you had you know a, quite a little bit of natural talent at video games, you know you would get killed off really quick. Um, their defender machine, the difficulty was jacked up to the max. You know, like I said when I uh, was talking about double dribble, you know I wanted to play a game of defender and I basically got like what six thousand points, which is an embarrassment for me at that point. If we're talking 1986. You know, I'm what, um, what, 18, 17, 18 years old, and I can put up, you know, 100,000 on Defender without too much effort. And to have that kind of thing happen uh, really stuck in my craw, and yeah, yeah, and the rest was history. I already went into that story. Um, but at the same time, if you were there enough, um, if you're there enough and you just said, you know what, I know how this game operates. I'm just going to play it and see how, you know, see what I can do with it. You would get really good really quickly. Um, because, you know, you're basically dealing with a machine with maximized difficulty settings. And if you know how a game plays, you can kind of model your way through and get better. Um... The Ms. Pac-Man machine that they had, you know, that thing was in and out of the news corner at least five or six times throughout my years going to that place. Of course, when I got my job at CVS in 1987, um, I was having to take the Main Street bus out to downtown to Fairfield Avenue and take the number two out to where I, you know, where my job was, and then come home that same way. Um, I had to make, you know, sort of make an arrangement with management saying, hey, I know you guys want me to stay till closing, but the last bus leaving from Fairfield was, you know, it's only, it comes out at like, you know, it goes through at like, what, uh, eight o'clock? And then I have to catch a connecting bus to get home. Sorry about that, folks. Uh, I got a phone call. And then I pull, was pulling up to the drive-thru to order lunch. So I decided to take care of all of that and resume once I got back on the road. So here we are. Um, so, yeah, when I would come home from work at, you know, from CVS at night, um... I would, you know, have to chill out at the news corner and wait for the last uh, Main Street bus to come through, which would be like right around nine, about quarter of nine or so. Um, by the time I got to downtown Bridgeport, it would be 20 after eight, maybe. So I would have a little bit of time to you know, play a couple games at the news corner, which is what I usually did. Um, also, sometimes I would go to the news corner uh, and play games while I was going to get my hair cut because the place that I used for most of my life, the place I would go to for most of my childhood, going into my teen years, and until, you know, I just decided not to stop going there was Carter's Barbershop on the east end of Bridgeport on Stratford Avenue. Um, so, 
when I was a kid, my brother and I used to go, and, you know, my brother, of course, would watch out for me, him being, you know, five years older than me, and it was still a little bit of a ordeal, an ordeal, to be grammatically correct, it was still a little bit of an ordeal to go get my hair cut when I was a little kid, uh, but we would go to the news corner uh, and just hang out there for a little while before we went to the bus station to catch the Stratford Avenue bus to go out to the barbershop. Um, as I got older, um, I started making the trip by myself because, you know, my mother could trust me to say, hey, here's uh, $10, go get, your, go get your hair cut, go get something to eat, and come back, you know, before dark. Um, you know, this was usually on a Saturday. Um, and I would go out there probably about, oh, I would say what, one o'clock in the afternoon, uh, after all the cartoons and, you know, the, uh, professional wrestling would go off, go off the air, uh, on Saturday, then I would, you know, get dressed and head down there. And, um, so I would go to the news corner if we're talking like 1982, 1983, I'm like, what, 13, 14 years old? And I can make the trip by myself now. But the reason why it was an ordeal when I was a younger kid was because I had um, hypersensitivity when I was a kid. Um, and I see it in my son. He inherited it from me, unfortunately. <laughs> And, you know, just like when it was a trial for me getting my hair cut back in the day, it's a trial for him to get his hair cut now. And he, you know, five years old and yeah, the clippers really mess with his, uh, it overloads his senses and he starts, you know, crying and squirming and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. But, you know, I went through the exact same thing. The problem was, is that, um, yeah, I was you know, hypersensitive, everything, I was like the princess in the pea, if something hurt, it would, it would hurt a lot, more than it probably should, but that's the, the hypersensitivity, but anyway, I would make a trip of it, and go to the news corner, and play video games, and, you know, maybe buy a couple comic books to read while I'm on the bus going out to Carter's Barbershop, and then to read on the way home. Um, and then once I got done at Carter's Barbershop, I would go back to the news corner, play some more games before catching the Main Street bus to go home. And, you know, things like that. And as I got older, I'm trying to remember when I stopped going out to Carter's. I think I was like, oh goodness, I think before the la the very last time I went to Carter's Barbershop, it was, what, 2000? Um, when I decided to go out there when I was visiting my mother and, um, you know, I wanted to get a haircut out there and, you know, just, to, and just to also see how the barbershop was doing and the barbershop was doing pretty much the exact same way it was when I was going there when I was a little kid, except, you know, um, the stylish changed a little bit, but anyway, um, the news corner was just, I want to say it was like just a small little bastion of gaming, especially once they really started 
getting machines in there. Like I said, I think the most games they ever had in that place was like eight video game machines and four pinball machines. And it was just, it was fun. I mean, you go and, you know, look at the magazines because they had pretty much almost every magazine you could think of. Um, they had, of course, they had a large comic book shelf and they would have Marvel, DC. I think they had Dark Horse at one point. You know, uh, they had, um, oh God, what's the name of the brand that um, McFarland did? that was that uh he did with spawn oh well i can't remember but you know all the almost all the comic books were there um it was kind of cool to watch you know to just play the games there's a game that they got in i want to say 1988 87 or 88 somewhere in there where i have never seen that game again me i've asked 20 million people about this game i think it's a game imported from japan and i've never seen it again i've asked people you know in the know people who know their arcade games and so forth so on and nobody knows what i'm talking about oh it's so frustrating um because I would love to find that game again, at the very least find it in emulation and play it because it was just one of those games that just really um, stuck out to me in my memory. I mean, it's stuck in my memory bank. Um, and, you know, this place had so many games coming in and out. It was just ridiculous. I mean, you know, it could almost be called an arcade, but I have to use my own rule that if you have a, a legitimate arcade has to have at the very least 15, uh, 15 game machines in order to be an actual arcade. Anything less, it's a game room <laughs> using my own criteria. So, um, yeah, I mean, uh, the last time I went to the news corner, oh goodness, I want to say the last time that I went to the news corner when it existed was probably 1993. Uh, before I uh, moved to, just before I moved to Florida, January 1993. Um, when I went back in, back to Bridgeport in 2000 to visit my family, you know, um, during the day I had some time to myself, so I drove down to the news corner just to see what was going on, and it was gone. I was so upset. <laughs> I mean, it was just one of those things where it's like just a piece of my childhood, a piece of my history is gone. It was basically a uh, consignment shop. Oops. That's work calling. Hold on. Okay, I'm back. This is the perils of doing recordings while at work. <laughs> um, but anyway, so yeah, like I said... I went, there, you know, I went back in 2000 and it was gone. Um, when I went back to Bridgeport again in 2004, um, to, you know, to basically to bury my mother, you know, to, you know, attend the funeral. Um, and then when I went back again in 2005, it's just not amazing, but, you know, progress is what it is, but downtown Bridgeport had changed a whole lot. You know, 
in the space of those 12 years from 1993 when I was still there to 2005 when I went back um, and the new, of course the news corner was still gone <laughs> I don't think it's ever coming back that's unfortunate well especially in this day and age when uh, you can basically find out anything you want to find out by doing a Google search and you know being able to sift through uh, websites and information to find what you're looking for um, and it just was it just made me sad it really did um, of course just having the experience of having such a place in such a place like I said that location was prime real estate for the news corner for a very long time but I think with the rise and advent of the internet in the late 90s going into the 2000s yeah I think the writing was on the wall for such a place not to mention it was in downtown Bridgeport which was had their issues with crime and so forth um but yeah I can kind of understand it but it was still a sad day when I saw that it was closed just like it was a sad day in 2005 when I found out uh later you know when I found out uh, in 2005 that the new that uh, Milford Wreck was was shut down and they had demolished the property. That was that was another sad day. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just like that when you find if you're a video game head and you find good places to play video games and you come to more or less rely upon those places for that experience, and then you go to their the location. And then all of a sudden, it's gone. <laughs> it's just not. It's just not a good feeling. It really isn't. But unfortunately, that's the way it goes with arcades, especially in those days before the free play. Uh, ad, you know, the advent of the free play option, where you just pay a certain amount of money and you can play the games as long as you want. So you know, that's the new formula that's the new business model for the modern day video game arcade and that's just that's just what it is um there are very few arcades that still run on quarters there are some i mean pinball pete's in downtown ann arbor is you know the example i use even though like i've said they're they're expensive to it's a it's an expensive prospect to you know go to Pinball Pete's and, and make an afternoon of it. But at the same time, I also, it's also comes down to real estate. That is downtown Ann Arbor, Michigan. And it's just rent, the rent for storefronts in that area is absolutely horrible. But anyway, I'm starting to ramble. All right. So that's my thoughts and feelings on the news corner. Um, Again, if you grew up in Bridgeport, Connecticut, and you remember the News Corner as a kid, you remember, you know, a lot of things, you know, remember things about it and the games and so forth, uh, by all means, don't be shy. Get a hold of me, arcadeaddictbrian at gmail.com. 
So that will do for this uh, On the Road segment. This is Brian saying good gaming, have fun out there, au revoir. This has been the Confessions of an Arcade Addict podcast. All music has been provided by Kevin McLeod. You can find his music at Incompetech.com. You can contact the show by email at arcadeaddictbrian at gmail.com or you can call and leave a voicemail at 734-743-2433. Until next time, you have been listening to the Confessions of an Arcade Addict podcast. See you then.